want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode Alpha number two. Well, there's always like the, the right of self-defense, and so that that was the first time we're like, well, man, like I, I'm seeing fire from this thing. I know they just got shot, and I'm trying to coordinate, but then you kind of lose track of where where guys are as they start moving into this this complex. You're like, I, I mean, I. I know the bad guy's there, but dude, I don't, I don't know if there's two army guys that are now like trying to go attack him. That's the voice of Major Matt Fitty Tucker, the guest for today's podcast. He's currently an F-35 pilot, although he's also flown the F-16 as well as the T-38. He's going to tell us a little bit about his journey in aviation as well as some of the things he's done in the Air Force. But before we get started today, a few admin items. A lot of the feedback I got from the last episode was, I got to wait two weeks for the next episode. And while I hope to be able to change this in the future, right now, I'm just not able to increase the frequency based on what I have going on in my life. However, I did create a Patreon page, which is allowing me to bring you more content in between episodes. That's patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast. And if you have a tough time spelling Patreon like me, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And you might be asking, Rain, what does this get me? Well, I'll give you some examples. At the patch level, you're going to get unedited episodes. Right when I record them, they'll be uploaded. Sitting there right now is an interview with Steve Reichert, who uh, is credited with a kill of over 1,600 meters in Iraq. He's also a survivor of an IED attack, as well as an interview with Major Cody Shiv Wilton, the A-10 demo pilot. Also question and answer sessions up there, behind the scenes photos, videos. And then at the next level of director ops, you're going to see who's coming on the show and be able to participate and formulate questions for me to ask upcoming guests, as well as a few other benefits there. Again, swing over to patreon.com if you're interested in some additional content and supporting the show. I also like to thank again, Matt Jolly over at warbirdradio.com where this podcast is hosted and then Jello over the fighter pilot podcast. Both those individuals have been a huge help for me and I encourage you to go over and check out their content. And last but not least, I'd like to thank the sponsor for this episode, wingman watch go to wingmanwatch.com and you can start building your group's custom watch today. It's a veteran owned company and everything is built right here in the good old US of a with Swiss movements, and at a fraction of the price you would pay for some other watches out there. I love my watches. Highly encourage you to swing over to wingmanwatch.com. If you find something you like that's already on there, you can use the code RAIN10. That's RAIN10. Receive 10% off your order. Well, I think that's enough of the admin stuff and time to get after the podcast. I got my good buddy, Matt Fitty Tucker, sitting here. 
F-35 pilot. He's flown the F-16. He's flown the T-38. He's done a lot of stuff in the Air Force. And it's going to be exciting to hear about his journey. So with that being said, Matt uh, or Fitty, let's get rolling. I already mentioned a little bit about what you've flown so far, but can you tell us where your Air Force journey started and what that looked like? So I went to school, University of Florida, did ROTC there. Uh, I basically went to college not sure what I was going to do. I wasn't really convinced that Air Force was the way uh, and then decided there's, I was not ready to sit behind a desk and do a different job. So I uh, gave ROTC a shot. Uh, from there, I got a pilot training slot to, and I went to Vance Air Force Base, so old Enid, Oklahoma. Went to pilot training. My first assignment, like you, was a FAPE, so first assignment instructor pilot. So I got the opportunity to save my life on a daily basis. Uh, <laughs> from there, I went to go fly F-16s in Fort Worth, Texas. So it was, a, it was a cool opportunity where they call it the TFI, the Total Force Integration. So there's like me plus about eight other active duty guys are plugged into reserve unit. Uh, so we were, let's see, we were on a Navy base in the middle of Texas, which is all sorts of messed up. So an Air Force unit on a Navy base in you know, the middle of Texas where they would still say, welcome aboard uh, every time you drove through the gate. Trying to figure out where the ship was in, in Fort Worth, Texas. With them, we uh, deployed to Afghanistan. Uh, a little bit different than probably your experience deployment. So, out of a six month deployment, we rainbowed, they call it, with uh, the Homestead unit from, from Miami, Florida. So, really, we were only responsible for about three months of that deployment, which is pretty sweet. Uh, and then, of the active duty guys, did three months. The reservists only did about six weeks. So, it was kind of like a hardship TDY. I went to go fly F 35s after that. So, I was pretty convinced that Korea was the path. Uh, we were ready. We'd already kind of picked out uh, houses and figured out how Mandy and the kids were going to, you know, do a year without me. Uh, but totally lucked out and uh, landed the F-35 assignment down at, in Florida. So we're a schoolhouse down there uh, teaching mostly, they call them TX students, so the transition students. So guys like you and I that previously flew a different fighter and then went to go fly uh, F-35s. We just started recently with our initial B course. So we're the first class going through now, but it's mostly uh, these TX guys. So experienced fighters, fighter pilots that go to go to Fly Hill or now Ielson. We've done a good job, I think, as a community to kind of break the mold and kind of develop our own like F-35 culture, if you will. And I've heard like the 35 community has done a pretty good job of, you know, guys are like, they won't tie on to like, well, in the A-10 we did this or in the Viper we did this. They've embraced it. So I know that. Hats off. Like that's got to be a challenge in itself just to kind of break that mold and figure out how do you fight with this yep. plane? Yeah, it is. And I think, I think we probably learned a lot from the Raptor community. And we, I mean, we kind of knew that I think as, as it started and you could see it, there's early on, there was, you know, the Strikeable community, there's the Viper community. And we have a lot of Viper dudes that, that kind of, I think early on. Um, but yeah, I think for, for generally everyone usually gets ridiculed when you say something like, well, in the Viper, we did this or, you know, everyone's like, Oh really? Are you a Viper pilot? Or are you a F-35 pilot? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I think for the most part, we've done pretty good. And I think that the next challenge there was, uh, and we can talk more in detail, but the, the way the F-35 was brought up so that the operational test is, was running concurrently with developmental tests. So as opposed to like previous platforms where they would develop a jet entirely and then kick it to the operational test guys to build tactics on it. We were kind of doing things at the same time. So what that led to is there was almost like an away Eglin did it away. Hill did it away. Uh, Luke was doing it. And so we kind of had these different islands, uh, which we've got past now. Once I think part of that was we didn't have a full up weapon school that was stood up yet. They're still kind of figuring that out as well. So once, once we've established the weapon school where all the tactics kind of fall from, 
it got everyone as, as best we could, I think, on the same page. And we're starting to see the blend. So the blend of the culture, the backgrounds, as well as the blending of different bases on kind of like everyone had their own islands of how they did stuff. Which is a good point because the F-35 got a lot of bad press in the beginning. It still gets some bad press because people want to compare it to the A-10 and doing close air support. And obviously that is not the mission of the F-35. It can do it, but yeah, absolutely. we need to go kick down at the door in some bad places. But do you think the fact that those two rank concurrently the operational test as well as the developmental test, is that why it got bad press or what, 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 what factors went into that? I think so. I think, and part of it too, is the fact that this plane grew up in like the social media era, you know, where everything was published on a daily basis. There's everyone had their own, whether it was like aviation news weekly or everyone had their own kind of like spin on trying to get the latest and greatest on what the F-35 was. And whether you're talking to a developmental test pilot, which was still the F-35 stuff, or you're talking to the operational dudes, you got two totally different stories on where the plane was. You know, like there's the story came out for a while about how, you know, a two bag Viper with tanks on it, you know, whooped an F-35 when really the background behind the story, like was they were developing the flight controls and like that F-35 was not, full up, we'll call it, you know, it didn't, it wasn't totally unlocked with all the, the flight control logic. So they're still running a test on it. Like, of course, like the jet wasn't ready and it wasn't the, the goal of that flight wasn't to show off how well the F-35 could do it. They were developing the flight control tests and, you know, and going through that. So it's been a lot of weird early on a lot of press, especially when you go TDYs or go different places. Like everyone wants to ask questions like, you know, why does this thing suck? Why isn't, why doesn't it do what it says it can do? Like, well, it depends where your source is coming from. Like, have you talked to an F-35 pilot? Have you talked to the guys that are doing it? Or are you just reading what some Joe Schmo's opinion of, you know, what it is? So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the Rafter, when we got the F-22, we got the F-16. This is a fully operational, capable plane. And different F-35 is, hey, once it's flyable and like we can land the thing, give it to us so we can start figuring out how to best employ it. That was, that's kind of the logic went behind it, right? And then, now we're getting different evolutions and blocks throughout. And is it, I mean, it's just been really in the past, like two years, right. That it's fully operational capable and we don't have all our planes that are that way. Right. Yeah. You bet. So like down at Eglin, we're still, so we're a schoolhouse at Eglin. Um, the software we're running, we only have a handful of jets that are, I'll call it like the operational tape, you know, that, that software that can go, uh, it's a mix of software and hardware upgrades. Um, but Hill right now is the only one that's running and then a couple guard units. So Vermont just got theirs. Um, and as, as more squadron are standing up, I also up in Alaska is going to get them has starting. They're starting the standup process. Um, but those are only guys with the operational, uh, software on the plane. So we've had it for a long time and there's a, a strong push to get it to this like initial operating capability and then call it like it was good enough to, to go do stuff, but it wasn't like the end result. And if you think about it, so the plane, although it looked me, it looks like a plane, right? It has, has two wings, got an engine, it's got wheels. Like it, it is a, a flying computer and it's, it's the software on the thing is, is ridiculous. And that's what, what makes it what it is. So if you think about Apple or Microsoft or like when you got your first iPhone, like iPhone one is not like it was, you know, the iPhone 11, like a drastic light year difference. So it's, the way you release software is like you, you have the initial, you have the idea of what it's going to get to. And then you have to start somewhere and like, here's block, here's block one, here's block two, here's block three. And then you got to keep increasing it. And so the end state is that it's an incredible jet and it can do some pretty crazy things. Uh, it obviously wasn't there when all the 
the politics. And and then of course, once you involve politics and money and how things yeah, are going, it, it just gets a weird, a weird twist to it. That was one thing I, you know, I, people on the airship circuit would always ask and everyone's like, why does F-35 suck? Why is it terrible? You're like it's not, and I had limited experience flying anything tactical with F-35, but I did a couple exercises I was like, I can attest that we have the F-35 there. Like the F-16 is incredibly, it's much more lethal just because of the data and things like that, that the F-35 is sharing with the fight. Um, it's an, I don't know, it's an impressive plane and it really has just been an uphill battle because everyone's like, God, oh, it's terrible at close air support. It'll never replace the A-10. It's like, that's not what it's designed for. Yeah. Um, I think part of that too, like early on, that was the idea. I was like, well, what's going to replace? And there was something that came out a while ago about like, yeah, it's going to, it's going to take, take over for the A-10. And A-10's been unfortunately on the chopping block for like, you know, as long as I've been in the Air Force, you always yeah. hear like, it's going away. Okay. We're not, we need, you know, actually no, we need it. So I don't know if it was like a politics game or how that, where that leaked, but I mean, yes, we do train to cast sort of, you know, but it's, that's not what we're built to do. It's it we're, the that idea is that you're using the stealth capabilities and all the sensor fusion and the integration to, to kick down the door of Iran, you know, Russia, China, like those type of fights. It's not, although you, you probably will see in Afghanistan doing stuff. That's not like, that's not the bread and butter of what we train to do. Yeah. Contested environments. So environments that are not permissible, you're going to have people shooting stuff. That's really advanced from the ground. That you need to be able to sneak in there and do stuff. So yeah. Interesting uh, to hear your perspective on that and kind of like the background. Cause I don't think a lot of people know that. And it doesn't, it's an info war and people are always fighting. It, it seems like Absolutely. the people who, scream about the A-10 are always the loudest. So what was it like going from the F-16 to the F-35? And it it was different. It's a, I mean, the F-16 is my first love. You know, I love love flying that plane. And it's the best fighter out there. It's good looking. (laughs) Uh, It's just, it, it's hard to explain. So the the flying is, although we're getting flight control logic that I feel like is similar to what the F-16 was. Um, but man, the F-16, like you, you know, you sit in there and it feels like you strap the, strap the jet onto you, like on your back, right? The F-35 is a little bit bigger feel. The cockpit's a little bit bigger. I think that's part of it too. You don't have the yeah. bubble canopy. There's a lot of frustrations uh, early on because of what I was used to seeing in, in the Viper as far as, you know, I had total visibility all, all around. It's, you're somewhat limited per se. Some of, there's, there's, there's workarounds and things you can do, but, um, so initial, just like getting in the plane flying, uh, you kind of early on, it was a little frustrating on, on trying to figure out how to, how to get the same viewpoints that I had before in the Viper. Um, but man, the flying, like the flying is incredible. The fact that, you know, like, like the Raptor, like the post stall flying. So it's, I mean, you can totally control the nose in a full full up stall. Like, you know, as you're, you, you can pull back on the stick, you can command up to 50 degrees alpha or AOA. Yeah. 35 degrees is the critical angle attack. So I can command another, uh, 15 degrees on top of that. So I get this nose track, which is, which is eye opening if you haven't seen it when you fight against someone else. Uh, so you know, even if you start as like a, I'll call it counter offensive. So a defensive looking position, uh, the ability to get the nose turning around to, to threaten the dude that's behind you, uh, is, is pretty incredible. Like it, it, the thing flies pretty well and it's, it's got a ton of power. Once you're down low, I mean, that thing just, it just cooks, you know, it, yeah, that's awesome. I feel like it kind of back to like a, uh, a Viper, a clean Viper day when you're raging at 400 knots and just sustaining nine G's. Uh, we're not quite there. Uh, but once you get below 10,000 feet, like this thing, this thing cooks pretty good. That's the flying aspect. Like, so I, I, I enjoyed, I mean, I enjoy, I really enjoy flying the F-35. I think I probably enjoyed just like the, the pure basic of flying the Viper probably better. I mean, it's like, it's like kicking out like the, 
you know, 60 Chevy in your garage, you just crank the thing up, <laughs> it, just, it just works. Um, but man, as far as impl- the amount of information that the F35 gives you is, is unbelievable. Like, it, you know, you go to these large force exercises where there's 80 jets flying around and in the Viper, man, you would think skinny, right? You had your four ship that you kind of go, man, I, I see a lot of stuff on the radar and I don't really know who's who, you know, as you're trying to figure it out. And in the F35, man, you, you just show up and it, like the jet just knows it just IDs things. It tells you where the good guys are. It tells you where the bad guys are. Um, you know, when we fly formation in the, F30, in the F-16, we we're a mile to a mile and a half apart, you know, right? So you're three to four miles from like the two outriggers as a four ship. Yeah. In the F-35, we're, you know, 60 to 80 miles apart. Like you don't see your wingman, but you have all the information from his jet. You look out in the helmet, you can see where he's at. So you have instant SA on, on what's going on around you. So that was probably the biggest uh, eye opener early on to me. It was just the amount, the amount of information that this jet just gives you uh, is nice. It also really sucks when you lose that information because like in the F-16, I remember like you would build your essay, right? You had ma- you had these bullseye maps, you know, that would show you like the layout of the airspace and you, you know where the train was, you know where your targets were and you had all these pictures of stuff. Well, in the F-35, all that stuff's sort of, I'll call it sort of done for you by the plane. So you don't have to spend as much brain bites building this mental picture of where things are. So when that stuff goes out, you know, every once in a while we have, you know, display issue ever like it's it's an instant essay dump and you you go from like king kong of the world knowing everything to like dude you were freaking you're lost in the world yeah you're just a supersonic piper cub exactly and you're by yourself right you're 80 miles away from your wingman so you're like oh this is not good yeah out there alone and afraid not exactly where we want to be well to shift gears here just a little bit you did a deployment to afghanistan f-16 can you tell me a little bit about that and your experience there it was good um like I said, again, it was like kind of a hardship TDY. It was only three months long. Um, we were in Bagram, so kind of like the northeastern portion of, of Afghanistan. Yeah, and for those who aren't familiar with Bagram, I mean, it's surrounded by mountains. So the environment is completely different than you and anywhere you've ever flown before. And now you're going out there doing the mission, loaded the plane out with weapons, lives are on the line. It is a different environment when you step out the door to go to yeah. war no yeah it's, it's definitely different it's like you said when you start putting real real weapons on the plane uh and i think the weird part too is and i say weird it the interesting part was the fact that we were basically doing uh support of like task force guys so like the special ops army guys um and they were on base with us as, well they were basically across the runway so we, we would develop a personal relationship with these guys you, you, you'd meet the guy that you're about to go on a mission with and talk to him on the radio and so it adds a little bit more, I guess, realness to it when, as opposed to just being a voice on the other end of the radio, like you knew that was Mike that you met at the chow hall. You can, you, you know, when you're eating dinner with them, like, you know, making jokes and being funny and then you hear him on the radio and you can, you can hear the stress in his voice or whatever. So it, it just adds you know, a little bit more realness to what you're doing. Yeah. It's a whole other dynamic. I mean, there's a face with a voice and you just brief with them or you ate dinner with them. So did you guys like usually brief with them or you're just like a telephone call. I know cause there's some logistics to getting over to the other side there. Yep. If there was, um, a higher emphasis, like, uh, mission they're doing, sometimes we'd be able to brief like the day prior or kind of get read into some of the stuff they're doing. Uh, most, it's like 90% of the time it's just, you were given products. Sometimes you do a brief like phone, uh, chat with them or sometimes it was just, you meet them out on the radio. You know, you just knew, you start to know you could pick up call signs on who people were. And usually based on the call sign, you kind of had the idea of what the mission was going to be, whether it was just armed overwatch where you're basically just flying overhead. 
making some noise or just, you know, kind of on call or whether or not it was like a deliberate strike where you're going out to do something like you kind of took off with already knowing what your objective was and what your, your targets were. At that point, were you guys doing a lot of HVI high value target or high value individual like surgical type strikes or was it mostly armed overwatch or was this a smattering of different mission sets? Yeah. So I'd say it was, it was definitely a mix. I'd, I mean, I'd say a lot of what I flew was this armed overwatch or you're just basically airborne alert. Just you're kind of holding burning circles in the sky waiting for something to happen. And then you'd be the quick response time while they sorted out, you know, the rest of the firepower. Um, but so it was a mix. It was a mix of just launching and being ready or going out with guys that were either like clearing there. I mean, we even joked about like there, we even had a mission once where the food facility that was next to Bagram, a lot of stuff was flown in, but a lot of stuff was trucked in. And so they had an issue where they have a bunch of riots in this food packaging facility, uh, which was limiting the, what food we were getting at Bagram. Like it really cut back to what they could get in there. Um, so in the meantime, they basically started these, uh, it was almost like a riot control team. You know, they would go out with like all their Humvees and like, a, and they would basically roll through this thing to just show presence to kind of, because once we showed up, whether it was dudes on the ground or just making noise, like everything would kind of break up and go away. But, you know, the locals couldn't control it when you know, these people started rioting in the streets, uh, which affected our ice cream and our eggs for breakfast. <laughs> so, I mean, we had a couple of times where we did armed overwatch for these guys that were just going to run patrols through the, this food packaging facility or basically, uh, I don't know, like a complex where they would just trucks truck stuff in. So we would do that. We'd make some noise over that. It would scatter the, the riots and then they would fill the food trucks up and bring it back to Bagram. So it went from like, no kidding, targeting where we're going out. No one, we were going after, like you said, like a high value individual or someone they've been watching for a long time, uh, all the way down to just, you know, making noise over top of trucks to keep, keep those dudes safe as they, they did their patrols. What was the feeling going from hanging out, burning holes in the sky to getting called in? shifting gears it's usually like 90 90 of it's all like boring benign stuff and they'll like 10 percent of the flying is like adrenaline through the roof yeah especially when you had uh, i mean we have they call them vols like vulnerability vulnerability periods where you have to fly for you know six to eight hours so you're like on hours you know four or five or six and you hit the tanker you know 15 times you're just trying to stay awake it's four o'clock in the morning you know you, i was on the night shift there uh which was good and bad it was nice because it was not hot during the day, but it was also kind of sucked because you're, you know, it was always dark, you know, when you flew. Um, so, you know, you're trying to do stuff to keep yourself awake. You're going to the tanker a lot. You're talking to your wingman. You're you know, just kind of torn around <laughs> Afghanistan. Uh, and then out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you know, something would pop up and you'd have to go, like you said, like zero to a hundred in about 10 seconds. And so a challenge, uh, I think for most guys too, is to go from like, how, how do you mentally deal with that? Like, how do you go from just like, you know, like, how do I stay awake doing fun, you know, funny jokes or tricks to holy smokes guys are getting shot at. Like, how do I get back to this, you know, being this professional aviator to, and, and break, and like you said, not get, not get spun up, especially when you're talking to a guy on the ground, you can, you can hear his voice that he's panicked or he's amped up to, he's, you can hear gunshots in the background. Uh, and then you have to find a way to be that voice of reason in the air and kind of slow things down. Those guys are pretty good at what they do in the ground, but sometimes they would, I mean, they're getting shot at and they don't know where from and they're calling for airstrikes and they want you to freaking blow everything up. And, you know, if you step back from it and go, that's probably not the smartest thing. We probably need to, you know, how do I support him? But not also, you know, just demolish a bunch of civilians and, you know, the stuff in the process. So it, it was, it was, a, it was an interesting, 
kind of mental gymnastics on how you go from like being tired, being, you know, just quiet night to all of a sudden like, holy smokes, we're in the middle of a firefight. How do I objectively like calm this guy down, give him the firepower he wants and, and not, you know, do stuff that we shouldn't be doing. Even just getting to where you need to go. Like that's a challenge in itself, right? Yeah. You mean like around the country? Or- yeah. Around the country and like finding out once you get a reta asking like where, who are you talking to? How are you getting there? Yeah. Who else is there? I mean, there's a lot that goes into that, right? Yep. Cause I mean, and that we saw, like we would also sit alert on the ground. So depending on what was going on the night, you could be like on a, a 15 minute alert or a 30 minute alert or an hour alert. And that was just basically your response time from when you get the call to when you should be airborne. So if you're on like an hour alert was kind of more chill, you could not be dressed and ready to go. Cause an, an hour is kind of the normal pace to, to go take off. But once you get into like the 30 minutes or 15 minute alert, you know, you're dressed, ready to go. They literally, we, we had a cowbell in the squadron. So you get a phone call and like the, the guy sitting at the desk would start ringing the cowbell. Uh, and that was your signal to, you know, to, and it was literally, you would, you'd run to the jets, you get it started as fast as you could. And you know, you'd have to, I mean, it was simple stuff like you had to make sure you're strapped in before you took off. Like you'd be doing, you're so amped up that you forget to do stupid stuff. Um, and then you have to fly across the country, you know, with the speed of heat, find the tanker somewhere. And then, like you said, go through all like the, who am I talking to? And you can't just go rage into the middle of this fight. You know, there's usually guys in the stack above you, whether there's predator UAVs or helicopters down low. And so you had to like really pause for a minute go, okay, like, you know, the whole, you know, cliche, like, uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Like you have to slow things down because otherwise you're just going to totally you know, hurt someone or, or yourself. So like you said, like trying to figure out, I mean, what radio frequency do I get on, which is a huge to me. You can be watching the fight and, and not know where he's talking to and whether it's secure radios or if you're on SATCOM or, you know, all that stuff. And then try to figure out who's above you, who's below you. Uh, and then, and then trying to figure out like who are the bad guys and who are the good guys, you know, like there's, there's just nothing but tracer bullets come back and forth and you're trying to figure out, you know, and just doing, I mean, you play the telephone game or when you're a kid and you pass, he says, she said, whatever. So there's a guy on the ground that might be talking to a guy, you know, on SATCOM who's talking to, you know, the MT-12 guy who then relays the message to me. And so now I have to go back and confirm to make sure that you don't get led down a path where like, you know, especially when you're showing up and you're all amped up and you're ready to help dudes out. Well, if you, if you start making yourself believe what you think you want to believe based on the words you're hearing, you know, you can obviously make a mistake pretty quick and drop munitions on the wrong people. So that, that was a hard part to be like so amped up and then try to slow things down and then figure out, you know, just get the whole mental picture and try to build, build what's going on. Yeah. So how do you think you get to the point where you're able to go from basically idle, even though you're cruising around 300 knots to run in a million miles an hour, thrown into a firefight, able to orient and figure out what needs to be done and how you can affect the fight. Because it's not just combat where that's applicable. I think that skill set at its core is applicable to most people being able to orient into a situation that's dynamic and, and challenging. Um, yeah. I mean, the training aspect is huge. I think just, I think in general, we do a pretty good job of when we get spun up for deployments, like doing exactly, you know, just a repetition of the same stuff over and over again. And then, and then at least for us, especially in Fort Worth, we had a lot of really experienced dudes. Um, most of them are reservists that have been doing this for 20 years. So I really, uh, hung I guess my tactics and my skills on, on stories I heard from the guys that went before me or even guys that were there with us that had done it before 
So you really you know, kind of lean on those guys and you listen to their pacing and how they do stuff. Like, you know, when we showed up, you know, we did a lot of training, but then I show up day one to Afghanistan. I'm like, here, like my first deployment, my first, I mean, that was my first time out of the U.S., you know, besides going to the Bahamas as a kid. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot going on. And so like you're, you're all amped up and you're ready to go. And then you start, I think a lot, the, the probably the biggest, one of the biggest lessons is like, you know, never miss an opportunity to shut your mouth, you know? And so you, you kind of show up there and you have to know like, yes, I, I want to be at the top of my game and I have to believe in my mind that you know, I'm the best pilot in the world, you know, doing what yeah. I'm doing. Um, but you have to know that you have to be ready to absorb and, and listen to people who have gone before you and, you know, done, done it before and just kind of watch their flow and watch how things go. And you, you spend a little bit of time observing and then you kind of slowly start feeding your own techniques in there. And, and then eventually you know, you're pretty confident in what you're doing, but I, I think that's probably translatable to any job you go to. If you, if you kick in the door day one thinking, you know, everything like you're, you're probably setting yourself up for, you know, fall on your face. They always joke. They say that it's better for you, you know, for them to think you're an idiot uh, and keep your mouth shut versus you open your mouth and prove them right. You know, like, so I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, love that. I, yeah. I, I, I uh, subscribe to that wholeheartedly. So I, you know, my, my mantra, I think is like the first six months anywhere I go, I I'm always just kind of quietly sit, observe, figure it out. And you, you learn, I think you learn a lot more by keeping your mouth shut. And I mean, same thing, you still do what you're going to do. Uh, and you still, you know, fly your jet and do all this stuff, but just by showing up there and I, like from that type of lesson, I learned like watching some guys I wholeheartedly, uh, respect I was flying as their wingman. And, you know, here I am thinking like, man, we're going to go drop bombs. We're going to do this and I'm ready to go. And, you know, this guy is like slowly going stuff. I'm like, what, like, how is he not ready? Like, I, I, I know where people are. I know stuff. And, you know, and I remember that I think it was the first time we, it's the first or second time we dropped bombs over there. Obviously, you know, that's my first time dropping bombs and hate. And we check in and man, I'm, I'm ready to go. And I think I have the whole thing doped out. Like I've done this a hundred times in training I had the picture figured out and the guy I'm flying with is again, super experienced. And I'm starting to like almost not question what he's doing, but like, man, he must be off his game. Like he, he is not, he's not, he doesn't have the essay based on what I'm hearing on the radio of what, what I think I have. But I, again, because I've shot myself in the foot before, I kind of keep my mouth shut for a minute and we do a couple more laps around the circle as we sort things out. And he, the way the guy on the ground was describing the target to us, um, I was locked onto a whole different area. And so like I had I me, mean, I, and one of those things, like he, I was led down a path where like the way he was saying things, I saw something outside versus like, you know, they teach you to like kind of build the picture in your mind and then use confirming common. So like, I go, okay, you talked about this, this four way intersection. And then I'll say, okay, I see the four way intersection. And on the Northeast corner, I see this building that looks like a, you know, a, a, the letter H and they go, yep, there's, you know, and if you look at that building, look just north, they kind of keep adding more calm to it. Well, I was going down the path of just listening to what he said. I look outside and I see something that looks similar to it. And I kind of almost talked myself into it. And then we eventually have a conversation, my flight lead and I, and I was like, hey, man, I think we, you can throw um, like targets out there. I can data link stuff to him. I go, I think this is what I'm looking at. And he's like, no, man, you're looking about 100 meters to the south. And then I move my target over to where he is. And sure enough, like it's a very similar looking picture but because this guy was, he saw both of them, my flight lead. And he was like, man, and he, he went like, we need to start over again. And like had basically calm this guy down, kind of reintroduced the talk on of like where the target was. And we ended up finding the right spot, dropped the right bombs. But dude, if, if I would have gone off with what I thought and I was, I mean, I would have bet you a million bucks that I had to figure it out. So I think that's just, that was kind of like my first waking up to going like, man, I, I need to slow things down when I show up here and, and not just bite off on the first thing I see just cause I'm amped up, you know?
Yeah, absolutely. Did the same thing. Like target talk-ons are, are challenging and it's an art form building the puzzle by not giving all the answers and making sure you're both are saying, seeing the same thing because yeah, that's like the worst thing in the world that could possibly do is put ordinance down in the wrong spot and kill someone who didn't need to be killed. Yeah. Yeah. You were sporting troops in contact or we did. Um, we had a couple of times where we would launch. Um, and a lot of times it, we call it like you know, the escalation of force. So it, the whole goal wasn't to drop bombs and every single person that, you know, cause issues, or whatever. So a lot of times we would show up, we had a couple like early on troops in contact where they were, yes, in contact and trading bullets back and forth, but the guys talking on the radio weren't, didn't feel super threatened. Uh, I guess they weren't being overtaken from all over. They just kind of like, Hey, we, we got to get through this way and we can't get past them because they set up a roadblock or said whatever. And so they traded some shots back and forth. The army dudes, especially the Afghan national army, they back up a little bit. And so we show up and then, so, you know, step one was to make some noise. And so you would, you would leave a wingman up high that was kind of tracking where the, the bad guys were, we'll call them. And then your wingman would either kind of extend out, you know, he'd run away 10 miles, would drop down low and then just, you know, haul the mail across, you know, just even air shows like, like you did, you make, you know, your surprise attack where you're kind of looking, you see the jet first and then like the, the noise freaking, you know, rattles your brain. So you do that a couple of times and usually that was enough to scatter them or you would do that and you'd drop some flares and depending how low you go, you'd have this like flare bucket that'd be bouncing down the street, you know, just spraying white phosphorus everywhere. Um, and then from then you would, you know, maybe shoot the gun off in the distance, you know, to show them that you're ready to employ and then maybe drop a bomb or do something else. And then, and then worst cases, then you would employ, you know, if, if it had to go that way. So most of the time we'd show up and we'd do these like shows of forces and that was usually enough to scatter them. Usually it was, a somewhat disorganized group of, of fighters, whether it was ISIS or just local, you know, resistance, I guess you call it. Um, the, the, I guess the biggest troops in contact we had was one that lasted for, it was, so it basically started with a mission that the task force were going off and it was there up in like the Northeast corner of Afghanistan. Anyway, so it, it's, it's a pretty harsh area. So a lot of terrain, a lot of mountains. Um, and do these, I mean, Af- the, the fighters there, the Taliban, whatever it is that were fighting ISIS is that they're, dude, there's some hardened people, man. They've, they've, they're probably walking barefoot. They've been in this like, you know, 10,000 plus altitude their whole life. You know, that that's their home. That's you know, what they're used to fighting. So we, there's some stuff they were doing over there, you know, on day one, they jumped, they dropped a bunch of leaflets going like, Hey, we're about to do some raids over here. If you're not part of ISIS, you probably should leave. Uh, you know, and then day two, they, they go out and they start doing the, the clearing that they, they do. So we had some guys that were like either on call, uh, and so I was the first, one of the first groups that was airborne waiting. So as things start kicking off, they start kicking down doors and doing the things they're doing. Um, part because, you know, it was a heavily infested, I'll call it ISIS area <clears throat> or ISIL, same, similar stuff, but uh, they were, they were somewhat ready for it. I mean, they had, you know, they had somewhat fortified gun posts. They had sort of things. So early on, we just started, they started their, the, the army guys started their press, uh, they got some resistance, so they backed off, and then we kind of leveled a couple things, you know, early on. So, call again, troops in contact was kind of expected. We already had pre-planned target areas that we were going to yeah. drop on. Um, but then stuff kicks off, and then again, you, you start hearing like the dudes you had lunch with or dinner with, and like you heard the story about his, like you know what his wife's name is, you know how many kids he has, and like you hear him on the radio and you hear him screaming. A couple guys got shot, um, so we started working through. It quickly went from like. You know, we're kicking ass and moving forward like, holy smokes, there's a couple of young dudes that just got shot because now we're talking about medevacs and escorting the helicopters in and clearing out areas. So 
the most, that was probably the most amped up I was for the deployment was, was that particular, like it went on for a, a day or two because we would you know rotate through and send more fighters out. We would go back and, and either reload the jets or send you know, another crew out there. Um, but working through hearing those guys, hearing <clears throat> the progression of them, you know, coming into contact, taking fire, getting shot. And then, then it, then it comes real. Then it's like, again, back to like, you got to fly back to your training. You got to calm down. You got to be the voice of reason, if you will. And, and a lot of times there's, I mean, you can, there's all these ROEs, right? The uh, rules of engagement on like what you can drop on, how you can drop on it, who has to approve it. Well, there's always like the, the right of self-defense. And so that, that was the first time we're like, well, man, like I, I, I'm seeing fire from this thing. I know they just got shot and I'm trying to coordinate, but then you, you kind of lose track of where, where guys are as they start moving into this, this complex. You're like, I, I mean, I, I know the bad guys there, but dude, I don't, I don't know if there's two army guys that are now like trying to go attack him and I don't want to drop a bomb. But yeah, I got the freaking bad dude. Well, he also took out like four good guys. Um, so that process and then just going through, uh, I mean, just doing your job, right? You're showing up there, you're making noise, you're dropping bombs when you ask for it, when they ask for it, and then you're trying to interject the most you can with the amount of essay you have. Uh, and then the challenging part was once you're out of weapons or out of, you know, you dropped, you only carry a handful of, you know, depending on what you're carrying on the jet. Um, but we dropped all our bombs uh, and then you kind of feel helpless. Like you're like, I, I want to stay, even though, you know, the alert crew just launched, you do a quick handoff with those guys, you know, they're fresh, fresh dudes, ready to go full of weapons. And it's kind of weird. Like the, like the job's not done. And it was kind of a weird thing. Like, you know, you, you don't want to leave because you've, you've almost built this relationship over the past hour while these guys are fighting. And now you're like, well, I'm not ready to go home yet. So I want to help knowing that you really can't do anything. So you don't have your weapons left and you know, you're running low on gas and you're trying to find a tanker and you're really just more of a, a hindrance at this point than help. And you feel like you have like a vested interest in it. Like you were yeah. there when they started it and you want to, it's, it's a weird, I mean, it's just something you, you learn to get over. And you got to get over yourself. Like you, and the whole Afghanistan thing is, I think part of that too, like you're talking to this young kid who was trying to say thanks to me. And I mean, you think of it like a, like customer support type relationship. Like, like I am just a support asset, right? Yeah. Flying yeah. a multi-million dollar jet with weapons on it. Uh, and granted, I love it, but my, like I am not the objective. Like what I was doing was not, it was what those guys were doing on the ground. And I literally like they were the customer and I was just there to support what, the, what he needed and what he wanted. Um, so you know, if you kind of go with that mindset, just remember that, you know, every mission is different. Sometimes you are the mission, but a lot of times we're not. And so I think if you have the mentality of just of knowing where you kind of fit in the grand scheme of things, it, it helps you kind of get through, you know, whatever internal battles you might have. Yeah, absolutely. You gotta know where you fit and how, like everyone's a key player and, and without it, the team can't get the job done, but yep. sometimes you're not the tip of the spear. Even if you're sitting in a F 16 or F 35, sometimes you are, it just depends. Absolutely. So Fiddy, I'd like to shift gears here just for a minute. I solicited for questions on Instagram. It was inundated with responses uh, to the point where I just, I don't have the bandwidth again at this point to answer all the questions. Um, but what I want to do is incorporate a lot of those questions and, guest sessions. You're the first one. Uh, this is going to be kind of a sample of what's available on Patreon because that's really where the meat of this is going to go. But one question just to kind of get people a flavor of what they can go find on Patreon. This is perfect for you. It's an F-35 maintainer. Daniel Brown underscore 12. He's an airman first class and he works on the F-35. He's applied to OTS and he's looking for advice and tips in that transition 
hopefully he ends up flying F-35. It'd be a pretty cool story. But what do you have for him? Yeah. Uh, man, I can say, first of all, like in, in life in general, timing is everything, right? So I think now is probably the best time we've seen in a long time to want to be a pilot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not that we're, we're dropping standards, but just like, you know, we are in dire need, whether it's air force, whether it's airlines or whatever, like, you know, needing people. So now, now is a definitely good time. Uh, I would say the one key advice that someone told me a while ago. So a quick backstory when I went through, when I played soccer, uh, I played my whole life playing soccer. And so my senior year of high school, um, in a practice messing around, I, I fractured a lower vertebrae in my back, um, and had to sit out part of the season long story about how uh, I screwed some things up I shouldn't have done. But because of that, I healed. Everything was good. I went through this whole process. Like my first two years of college, I wore this like full back brace and it was just absolutely miserable. Uh, like a gimp walking around. Uh, um, anyway, so I go to RTC. I go through all, you know, like the two day process where they do all the medical reviews and figure out and everything's good, except they're like, Hey, what's up with this back thing? Well, it turns out that was a disqualifying, whatever, however they diagnosed it was a disqualifier. Um, Part of that was when they took my civilian medical records and they transcribed them to my military ones, they, there was a bit of a transcribing error. And so the condition I had wasn't necessarily the condition they transferred over. It was similar, but it was, it was way worse than what I actually had. So because of that, they went through all this waiver process and I got, ultimately got denied. Like you cannot fly, like you're disqualified. And it was almost to the point where like I was disqualified from even commissioning the air force. And this is like my junior year when I'm expecting to like, you know, get my pilot slot and do all this stuff. So it was kind of crushing early on. Um, and I got to the point where like, man, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like I've already like fully committed to this, that, you know, uh, I'm not going to be a business major anymore. I'm not going to, I want to fly. I want to do this. And the first answer came back was like, no, you're not, you can't do it. And so I was like, I was really crushed. Um, my dad actually was the first one that was like, like, well, you know, what's your plan? What do you want to do? Like, well, I really want to do this. He's like, well, then keep going. You know, like if you, if you accept no as an answer, like it will be, for, that door is forever shut. You know, like, like you, you will find, I guarantee you like the next door you knock on, you're going to find a no again. And like, you're going to keep finding no's. And if you just keep knocking on doors until you find, you eventually will find a yes and you'll find a path. Uh, so he was kind of my corner and he, long story longer, we, end up going to, I had to go to my, my state congressman and wrote a letter, the whole deal, explaining stuff. Um, because at that point, I mean, there's, there's a lot, you know, I was just a number to the air force. It didn't matter. So I go to the congressman and I tell him the whole story. He goes through and I end up getting a congressional waiver, which is, uh, was kind of crazy. Uh, and that got me reinstated for them to at least look at it and I'm getting a waiver. And so it took me about a year of just knocking on multiple doors, getting multiple no's and every no you get is just motivation to, keep going. And and to me, it ended up being awesome because it, it really drove home internally, like what I wanted. There's a lot of things in life, you know, what you, you don't want to do is almost as important as knowing what you do want to do. And so I, I knew I didn't want to not be in the air force and, and fly. And so that it really drove home. Like, like that was the path I'm going to find someone to say yes and find a way. Um, so fast forward that story to advice on him is like, you will hit road bumps. You are going to find challenges, whether it's whether it's getting in a commissioning, whether it's going through pilot training, whether it's passing check rides, whether it's like, you're going to hit road bumps and the way you deal with it, I think is what, you know, ultimately is going to get you where you want to go. So in short, I would say, don't take no for an answer. Like find, find your yes, find your way. Like you will hit doors. 
Yeah, 50. Uh, 100% agree. And I can't think of a better way really to wrap up the podcast than on that note. Um, we do have a few more questions that will be over there on Patreon for people who are looking for additional content. Um, but you're right. Like life is going to throw you curves. You got to you gotta deal with it. You got to get after it. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Flying an F-35, flying F-16, doctor, lawyer, firefighter, teacher, husband, wife, you're going to have to deal with stuff. And it's going to be easier for some than it will be for others. Like that goes without saying. Uh, But you do only get one life. So I think it's important to get after it. Hopefully you guys enjoy this podcast. Uh, Again, hit the subscribe button. Leave me uh, a review there. That definitely helps me out. Let's me know to keep doing this thing or man, maybe I should wrap it up. But uh, if you're looking for more content, again, go check out Patreon. A lot of stuff up there. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Until then, don't bring a week.